The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to NeuroMatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. Our topic this afternoon is mild cognitive impairment. To introduce this topic, I want to use the example of adolescence. You know, the transition from childhood to adulthood goes through the period that we call adolescence. Similarly, the transition from normal cognitive functioning to the impairment that you see in dementia goes through, in most cases, a state or a phase that has been termed mild cognitive impairment. So this will be our topic of discussion. So come on in, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and let's talk about this topic. You know, originally, back in 1962, a concept called benign senescent forgetfulness was coined. And what was intended by that concept is a reduction in cognitive efficiency, especially in memory efficiency. And uh, Dr. Kral, who introduced that concept, uh, did not... um, Uh, feel that this was a condition that would lead to dementia, but felt that it was a stable condition of um, some decline relative to middle adulthood. Uh, Following that time, an NIMH, National Institutes of Mental Health Study Group, coined the term age-associated memory impairment. And uh, following that, the International Psychogeriatric Association used the term age-associated cognitive decline. The difficulty with these terms is it was not clear whether these terms referred to the changes in memory or other aspects of cognition due to normal aging or whether they were considered to be a disease state. Our wonderful neighbors to the north in Canada use the concept of cognitive decline, no dementia, which partly relates to the concept of mild cognitive impairment, but also included static conditions. In other words, uh, encephalopathies, brain conditions that were not changing over time. It was in the mid-1990s that neurologist Dr. Ron Peterson with the Mayo Clinic coined the term mild cognitive impairment in an article that he published called Normal Aging, Mild Cognitive Impairment, 
and early Alzheimer's disease. And we still use uh, this concept more widely than any of the others today. In fact, there is a concerted research effort to understand what the clinical characteristics of this condition are, what the pathological characteristics of it are, and things like that. So we're going to talk about mild cognitive impairment, and let's begin with the definition. The first component of the definition is a memory complaint. In other words, someone sees him or herself as having a memory problem. Hopefully, this is something that can be corroborated by an informant, someone that lives with the person. The second component of the definition is some type of an objective measurement of memory that um, is normed with age and education. In other words, some type of an objective memory test that um, has normative values for different ages and for different education levels. And we'll talk a little bit about that down the line. The third component of the definition is that the individual has largely intact general cognitive functioning. There is no problem with language systems, with perceptual organization, with organization of complex movements and things like that. The fourth component of the definition is that the person is perfectly independent in activities of daily living. And the fifth component is that the person does not have dementia. So this is the definition that Dr. Ron Peterson laid out. Memory complaint, preferably corroborated by an informant, an objective measurement of memory impairment, generally normal other cognitive functioning, independence in activities of daily living, and the person does not have dementia. Peterson has also talked of different subtypes of mild cognitive impairment, and he actually outlined three subtypes. The first is what he referred to as the amnestic subtype. That means that um, this person has impairment of memory, but no other areas of impairment at all. The second subtype is what he referred to as multiple domains. That means that there is mild impairment in multiple areas. It may include memory, but will include perhaps language or perceptual skills or um, other things along those lines. And then the third category that Peterson laid out was the single non-memory domain. In this condition, memory functioning is perfectly normal, but um, some other aspect of cognition is not functioning properly. So, Peterson laid out these conditions in the hopes of having an understanding of what uh, would happen in the future with these individuals. Dr. Peterson suggested that each of these different types of mild cognitive impairment may have several different etiologies. In other words, several different physical conditions that would be causing that problem. Um, he also made it clear that the farther you progress from mild cognitive, cognitive impairment to more obvious and generalized impairment, the clearer the physical cause or etiology becomes. If mild cognitive impairment is actually what some have called a prodromal condition, a condition that is going to lead to dementia, then it might be possible to predict what type of dementia 
each type of um, uh, MCI might evolve into. And Peterson's argument was that the amnestic type of mild cognitive impairment, the type that has memory problems but no other problems, is most likely to progress to Alzheimer's disease. The multiple domains type, the type that has memory problems but some other areas of impairment as well, may progress to Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia and interestingly may also reflect a static condition of normal aging. And then his third category, the single non-memory domain, the, con- the condition in which memory functioning is normal, but there are other areas of impairment likely to pro- progress to frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body disorder, primary progressive aphasia, or vascular dementia. So we see that each of these may have multiple causes, and um, and each of these uh, may progress to hopefully a predictable set of conditions. Now, here's the importance of this discussion of mild cognitive impairment. What happens down the line with the person who has been diagnosed with the condition? I'm looking now at the graph that uh, Dr. Peterson originally published in this area, and he followed individuals who had mild cognitive impairment, he followed them for six years to see how many of them developed dementia. And as I look at this graph, it appears that uh, from year one to year two, about 20% of these patients have developed dementia. By year three, about uh, 35 or 40 percent, and by year four, we're looking at 50 to 60 percent. In fact, this uh, relationship between um, the mild cognitive impairment and the conversion to dementia has been held up in a number of different samples, although the exact number may vary. But generally speaking, people would consider that in a normal population of older individuals, 1% to 2% might evolve into dementia each year. But in a sample of patients with mild cognitive impairment, 10 to 15% would uh, progress to developing one of these forms of dementia each year. What's also interesting about this graph, however, is that after six years, about 25% of the individuals still did not develop dementia. And that is an area of uh, obvious great clinical interest. And it's also very interesting um, to understand what is happening neuropathologically and what is happening in other clinical areas with those individuals. So the importance of the concept of mild cognitive impairment. It is generally seen as being a stage or a condition which which um, characterizes the transition from normal memory functioning to dementia. It has a number of different clinical features. Um, certainly, mild cognitive impairment increases the risk tenfold, it would appear, of developing dementia each year. And, um, and yet there are some individuals with mild cognitive impairment who do not develop dementia at all. Obviously a condition of great interest and it is hoped that by studying this condition we can get an understanding of how to alter the rate of conversion 
to uh, from mild cognitive impairment to dementia. So, how is mild cognitive impairment evaluated? Well, as uh, I mentioned above, uh, one of the uh, first things often seen is a patient says, I'm having memory problems. Now, it's interesting, and and we've joked about it, that uh, my son, who is... um, a uh, very active young man may not find the keys to his truck, and we will say, well, that's just my boy. My father, who's 91 years old, if he can't find the keys to his truck, we want to get a CAT scan. So we obviously react to these things very differently depending on the age of the individual who is uh, experiencing or reporting a memory problem. There are standardized assessments that are used for informants, uh, someone who may live with the person uh, or see the person often, standardized assessments where they can sketch out the various areas of impairment and how long they have been going on, but the key feature of this is some type of standardized assessment of memory functioning. Now, this is much more difficult than it would appear for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is we do not all start equally in the area of memory functioning. Some people have better memories than others. Another reason is that memory abilities vary within each of us as we go through our day and as we go through our week. Uh, we do have a caller, Ashley from Texas. Ashley, welcome to the program. Hi, Dr. Brinkman. Um, I was wondering how mild cognitive impairment is similar to the impairment that you see in Alzheimer's patients. Well, that's a very excellent question, and uh, we can see the similarities um, in a couple of different areas. Uh, one is... Um, in simply the clinical features. We know that Alzheimer's disease, for example, tends to begin with memory impairments more commonly than any other symptom. And, of course, uh, we see that uh, executive functions develop very quickly after that. And such seems to be the case with mild cognitive impairment as well. Um, The next area, and we'll go into this in a little while, but would have to do with the pathology. You know, the the $64,000 question is, what's going on in the brain of an individual who has mild cognitive impairment? Does it show the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, the kinds of things that Dr. Singh talked with us about last week, or does it show some other pattern that uh, that may or may not be related? So I really appreciate that question and uh, uh, and impressed with the quality of that question, Ashley. Right, you, thank, you. thank you very much for calling in. I appreciate that. No problem. We are going to a break, and when we return, we will begin to uh, talk a little bit about the neuropathological correlates. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. 
The Gray Matter System provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking about mild cognitive impairment, and I want to return to the concept of standardized testing and and discuss a little bit further what makes that such a complicated process. Um, As you know, we are not all equal in our memory abilities. Some people may have excellent visual memory. Others may have excellent verbal memory. Uh, Some people simply don't function um, ever in their adulthood with real well-developed memory ability. So we have different baselines. We know that um, that baseline changes with age. In other words, when we look at an intensive learning task, we know that the older you get, the uh, slower is uh, one's performance on a rote learning task. In other words, just raw memorization. And um, and we also know that um, people that have a higher level of education tend overall to have better memory functioning. So anytime that memory is assessed, we have to consider the baseline for that age and for that education and how well the person was functioning within that group. So if a person is given a task of listening to some stories and telling what they recall from those stories, either immediately or at some point um, Uh, minutes to hours later, 
you know, if that's the type of task that we're using, we may express that person's performance as perfectly normal, 50th percentile. We may say they're way above normal, 75th, 90th percentile, or we may say they're somewhat below normal, maybe 15th or 20th percentile. And at some point, we uh, would term that as falling in the abnormal range. The other part of it is that... um, We are sharper at some times of the day than others. We are sharper some days than other days. And so there is a natural variability in memory performance in each of us. So when a person is seated and is administered a standardized memory test, that test score has to take into consideration what that person's normal variability is day-to-day and even within a day. So this becomes more difficult than it would seem uh, at first glance. Now, I want to um, talk a little bit more uh, in response to Ashley's question about what I would call the neuropathological correlates. What is going on in the brain of someone with mild cognitive impairment? Dr. Singh last week provided an, an excellent overview of the microscopic neuropathology. Basically, what he described is that there is regional atrophy. In other words, there are parts of the brain that have a greater rate of cell loss than other parts of the brain, and in Alzheimer's disease, it follows a fairly predictable pattern. We don't know why it is that pattern. Um, Dr. Singh discussed possibly some um, geographic distribution of vulnerability in the brain such that when a process like uh, amyloid aggregation takes place, that it Uh, is much more aggressive and much more effective in its destructive action in uh, specific areas. And most commonly, those would be the hippocampus. There is a hippocampus on each side of the brain. And um, the hippocampus is an absolute key component of memory functioning, uh, or it may be in the medial temporal lobe area, sort of the inside of the uh, temporal lobes of the brain. And uh, so we know that that's where early atrophy occurs. And of course, you see early atrophy in the frontal lobes of the brain as well. And in these regions, we see the development of these two microscopic changes. One is the beta amyloid plaque. Dr. Singh discussed a protein that folds abnormally and that begins to clump together into these plaques. Amyloid is a naturally occurring protein and beta amyloid is that abnormally folded form of the protein. And then we see also microscopically the neurofibrillary tangles and these result from hyperactivation or hyperphosphorylation of a structure called a tau protein, T-A-U, tau protein. That tau protein lives on the axon, the long process that comes off the uh, nerve cell body. And it has sort of a management role there. When that neuron breaks down, uh, potentially due to hyperactivation of tau or to other factors, the contents of that axon 
the railroad system, as Dr. Singh described it, uh, or uh, what I have called microtubules, you know, small structures that transport material up and down the cell body, that uh, those then degenerate and become entangled. They're freed up from the um, membrane of the cell and become entangled, and that becomes what we refer to as neurofibrillary tangles. Interestingly, these are the two things that Dr. Alzheimer observed under the microscope in 1906, and uh, we have developed progressively increasing understanding of why they develop. Now, the big question is, in mild cognitive impairment, and we'll limit our discussion here to the amnestic type, which has the greatest probability of evolving into Alzheimer's disease, is this pathology present? Do we see beta amyloid plaques? And do we see neurofibrillary tangles? Unfortunately, the answer is as complicated as the question, I guess. And the answer is yes, sometimes. Uh, there are times when an individual will have a heavy load, um, a, a lot of uh, concentration of beta amyloid plaque and neurofibrillary tangles, and will develop that heavy load without really demonstrating symptoms. Mild cognitive impairment is about the symptoms, and on the basis of that and on the basis of the research, we want to try to project what is happening inside the brain. So there's enough evidence to say there's a significant relationship between beta amyloid plaque and neurofibrillary tangles and the development of the amnestic type mild cognitive impairment. So there is a relationship there. Let's go back to the nun studies that we discussed last week. You know, it was... Um, I think quite surprising for researchers to see how much beta amyloid plaque and neurofibrillary tangles were in some of the brains of individuals who had been followed for a long period of time and who really did not at any point show significant evidence of memory problems. If there's no memory problem, by standardized testing repeatedly over years, then one would expect that there would be no uh, Alzheimer-type pathology in the brain. But surprisingly, there was a significant amount of that pathology in the brain. Similarly, there were some individuals in these longitudinal studies that showed very pronounced memory problems, um, a, a great deal of dependency on others for um, complex or only intermediately complex cognitive tasks, and yet some of these brains showed only a mild load of beta amyloid plaque and neurofibrillary tangles. So the rule is that the more of this neuropathology you see, the more clinical impairment there is likely to have been. The exception to the rule is of great interest because there is something about these brains or these people that can handle this heavier pathology load without developing the severity of symptoms with many people with lighter loads develop. If we can unlock the secret to that finding, it becomes very important. And MCI, mild cognitive impairment, is the place where we're most likely to unlock those secrets. Now, there are a few other approaches that are taken to understanding what this neuropathology is as well. The problem with measuring beta amyloid plaque in brain or neurofibrillary tangles is it requires brain tissue under a microscope. So we're talking about either autopsy or biopsy, which is not 
indicated for Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> Is there a way that we can look at these um, the loads of this neuropathology without having to wait until autopsy? And the answer is an increasing yes to that question. There are a number of ways that that's done. You know, developed originally in Pittsburgh is a compound that came to be known as Pittsburgh Compound B. If this compound was administered to a person, it, in a sense, attached to the beta amyloid in the brain. This is in a, a living individual, and um, as that material that was administered attached to the beta amyloid plaque, it emitted a signal that could be picked up by positron emission tomography, or what's popularly known as PET scanning. So, in this day, we can now actually measure with acceptable accuracy how much beta amyloid plaque is in the brain. We don't have that type of a measurement yet for neurofibrillary tangles, but it is there for beta amyloid plaque, and that allows us to study in living individuals that relationship between clinical symptoms severity of memory impairment and how much pathology is actually in the brain. These um, PET scanning studies with Pittsburgh Compound B actually demonstrated the distribution of the beta amyloid plaque uh, in the same pattern that we see in uh, Alzheimer's disease brains at autopsy, that being in the hippocampus and medial temporal lobes, frontal lobes, and then progressing from there to um, the uh, area where the parietal, occipital, and temporal lobes come together in the back of the brain and in the front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. So, um, that correlate is very helpful here. We can look at MRI measurements of hippocampal size to get an understanding of whether the hippocampus is smaller than it should be, and also through algorithms that are built into uh, some MRI equipment, you can measure atrophy in that medial temporal lobe area as well. So, this gives us a lot of promise for the future. We can begin to measure the size of very specific structures such as the hippocampus, and we can get an idea in a living individual of how much amyloid plaque has accumulated in the brain and compare that to how well that individual is functioning in terms of memory, language, judgment, thinking speed, and all of these different types of things. Well, we're going to come back to this topic in just a couple of minutes after we return from this break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? 
These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matter System provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us. I'm Dr. Sam Brinkman, your host on Neuromatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. And we have been discussing methods of uh, measurement of what's going on in the brain. You know, there are a limited number of techniques available to um, understand the brain in a living individual. And we've talked about MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. We've talked about PET scanning. Let's go back to the early 1970s when CAT scanning was developed. You know, CAT scanning or computed tomography is a sophisticated x-ray procedure that involves reconstructing an image of the brain with slice thickness uh, becoming smaller and smaller as the uh, technology has improved. Some of these um, imaging studies tell you only anatomy. Some of them tell you functioning. A CT scan, an x-ray only tells you about the morphologic structure, only tells you about the anatomy of the brain. The same is true of magnetic resonance imaging. It tells you the anatomy of a brain using uh, nuclear, uh, some principles of nuclear physics to, to um, look at... Um, uh, behavior of atoms in a high-powered uh, magnetic environment. Um, MRI can be modified to do some other things, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. When we think about PET scanning, positron emission tomography, now we are looking at the actual functional activity that's going on within the brain and depending on what type of substance is introduced into the brain you may be able to measure different things for example um, if you measure glucose then you have an index of glucose metabolic rate in different areas of the brain and um, that will tell you how well different brain structures are functioning. There are um, other measures that can be presented that actually will allow you to look at the flow of 
substances in blood through the brain, understanding that this thing called neurovascular control means that there's increased blood flowing into an activated area of the brain and less blood flowing into inactivated areas. Uh, SPECT imaging, many of you may have heard of, single photon emission computed tomography. Um, it is uh, similar in that it can give an index of glucose metabolism. And of course, in the long run, I think that the SPECT imaging technology holds the promise of being able to label even individual neurotransmitters in the brain. SPECT imaging in mild cognitive impairment has demonstrated pretty much the same pattern that the anatomic studies with the MRI have shown and that PET scanning have shown. Um, and there is an interesting study in which individuals who had mild cognitive impairment underwent the, uh, the SPECT study to look at glucose metabolism and they were able to determine in advance which ones would progress to dementia and which ones would not. So again, that offers us a lot of promise um, in terms of management of cognitive deficits before they become very severe. And then I will add to that functional MRI or fMRI, which uh, is showing findings similar to what the SPECT and PET studies are demonstrating. Uh, we have another caller on the line, Jacob. Welcome to the program. Hi, Dr. Rittman. I uh, just want to say I've really learned a lot listening to your show. Um, I had a quick question for you. Um, are there any medications being used to effectively treat mild cognitive impairment at this time? Well, Jacob, thank you for listening to the show. I really appreciate that, and I'm, I'm glad that, that it is giving you some educational value. Uh, there obviously is a great deal of interest in finding a medication that would prevent the conversion from MCI to dementia. Um, Aricept was one of the first medications studied in this area, and um, unfortunately, Aricept, which is used for uh, Alzheimer's disease, did not prevent the, re the conversion to dementia. There are a couple of other things that I will mention, though, and these are both under the category of medical food. They require a prescription. They're approved by FDA in the category that they call medical food, which means that they're a nutritional supplement that has applicability to specific diseases or conditions. And the first one of these that I'll mention is Axona. Axona is a substance that's been around for a few years now. Many of you have heard uh, the story of coconut oil in Alzheimer's disease. And uh, so let me talk just briefly about why Axona might be useful. We know that in early Alzheimer's disease and in um, mild cognitive impairment, metabolism of glucose is less efficient than it is in a normal brain. Glucose normally is metabolized a lot more efficiently than our ketones, but as glucose metabolism becomes inefficient, ketones become a better source for energy for the brain cell. And for that reason, axona was developed as a method of providing ketones as energy source for brain cells. And that's essentially what the uh, uh, thought is uh, that uh, coconut oil does. Axona includes coconut oil and some other things as well. The other substance that I will mention here goes by the brand name of serifolin, C-E-R-E-F-O-L-I-N. It is basically folic acid 
and it has been approved by FDA for treatment of um, more or less quoting from their packet insert the metabolic conditions which give rise to memory problems in older individuals. So it doesn't say that it's for MCI or for early Alzheimer's disease. So those are the two, Jacob, that that have been approved by FDA. And of course, as um, other medications are developed potentially for Alzheimer's disease, um, they would uh, be tested out with MCI to prevent conversion to dementia as well. Does that answer that question adequately? Yes, thank you. Jacob, thank you so much for listening and for calling in. I appreciate that very much. This whole topic... Uh, this whole topic of finding treatments for Alzheimer's disease is a complicated area, and um, and I look forward to. And Jacob, I think that a lot of people out there would uh, would like to hear more about what's going on in that area. We touched on it briefly last week. In terms of attempts at development of medications right now, of course, a number of things have been attempted that would either um, cause the beta amyloid plaque to be removed from the brain or prevent the abnormal um, uh, bending of the amyloid protein or things along those lines. And unfortunately, the um, FDA-approved trials in that area have not been nearly as promising as we had hoped. There are um, a number of them that have been studied. There are still a couple of them that are in progress. But what's interesting uh, as we look at data from those studies is basically this. If you listened last week, you learned that there are a number of genetic uh, markers, genetic intermediate steps that have to do with the development of pathology in Alzheimer's disease or in a lot of other conditions as well. And the thought is that these medications that have been tested in large groups and have not panned out very well may actually be useful for subgroups of those subjects, uh, subjects that have uh, certain patterns of genetic indicators. And so um, while the the um, beta amyloid plaque uh, uh, manipulating drugs have not been helpful, there is still hope that in the right subgroup of patients, they will make a difference. As we understand more about these genetic indicators and other um, other types of biomarkers as well, of course, the better we will be able to understand what's happening with mild cognitive impairment. Now, these biomarkers are, individ- uh, are uh, interesting. A biomarker is any biological structure or process or um, substance that can be measured and that can be used reliably to characterize some type of a disease process. There obviously has been a lot of interest in looking in blood for evidence of beta amyloid plaque or looking um, uh, for neurofibrillary tangles or the tau protein as well. Uh, There obviously has been a lot of interest in looking at cerebral spinal fluid, that fluid that flows through the brain and on down the spinal canal uh, and that, um, uh, among other things, manages chemical environments. If some indicator of beta amyloid plaque, tau protein, hyperphosphorylation, neurofibrillary tangles could be found there, it would be tremendously helpful. 
I will add to those as well, the genetic indicators. You know, this area of molecular genetics is just exploding right now. And the area of molecular genetics does hold a lot of promise for what might be developed in medications that would alter the translation of a genetic code into the formation of a protein. So it sounds uh, almost science fiction-like in a sense, um, but um, as we can interrupt that process of an abnormal genetic messenger leading to the creation of abnormal molecular structures, then the hope would be that we would have a very big impact on um, at least now arresting the progression in Alzheimer's disease, in other words, preventing it from getting worse, and in the future even potentially develop um, indicators of who is at higher risk for the development of it and, um, and preventing the development of Alzheimer's disease in the first place. So when you see the, um, the words that the Alzheimer's Association has been using more and more, creating a world without Alzheimer's, on the one hand, that sounds like such a lofty and nearly unachievable goal. And yet when you look at what we have learned in the evalu evaluation of the microscopic pathology, the, um, the genetic uh, data transfer, genetic information transfer, transfers that can become abnormal and things along those lines, This we, we are becoming closer and closer to that reality. Unfortunately, not nearly as fast as we would like to be coming to it. But with these biomarkers, we now have the opportunity to simultaneously look at clinical functioning, memory abilities, language abilities, etc., the structure of the brain, including uh, very minute measurements of brain structures, the metabolism of the brain, the load of beta amyloid in the brain, and some of the genetic markers that provide input into that whole process. So it is very fascinating. We are going to go to a commercial break. I hope that you will stay with us and we will talk a little bit more about treatment goals and how they are evolving in the whole um, discussion of the dementia. So stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. 
Caring for someone with autism can be full of challenges and triumphs. Wherever you are on your autism journey, we all benefit from good information and guidance. Join host Rob Haupt every week for a friendly show that will leave you inspired and informed. Tune in to Autism Spectrum Radio. Our guests include parents, advocates, and experts to discuss current experiences, treatments, and breakthroughs for those living with autism. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Thank you for joining us in our program today, and thank you for staying with us through the commercial break. You know, I appreciate Jacob's comment about the educational value of the information that we're discussing. Our topic is mild cognitive impairment, which is thought by many to be an intermediate stage between normal memory functioning and the development of Alzheimer's disease. And um, it is important that the public become more and more educated in this area for many reasons. You know, um, the healthcare consumer has become a much more spontaneous um, pursuer of healthcare services that are tailored to their specific situations and conditions, and um, that requires knowledge. Knowledge is power, and it is my desire with this program to equip you and empower you with knowledge that will make a difference in the lives of uh, those that you love. I would ask you to tell others about the program. You know, Statistically, each listener out there almost certainly knows at least one person who is dealing with Alzheimer's disease or some other form of dementia, either um, in themselves or in uh, individuals that they know and that they are close to. And having these um, these episodes from the radio program available through podcast or in the archives um, almost provides a 24-hour-a-day availability of information that uh, it can be helpful, can be informative, can guide decisions, and um, can be reassuring at times as well. So it is my hope that you will let people know about the program and about the educational value of the program. Now, getting back to this intermediate step, mild cognitive impairment, and its introduction to the discussion of dementias in the 1990s, we now are organizing our schema for treatment of the dementias a little bit differently. And I'm going to list for you five different stages now that we talk about and what the primary treatment goals are at each stage. The first stage, of course, is normal aging. You know, I want to remind all of you 
again and again. Most people do not get dementia. Yes, there's a lot of it. And yes, the risk gets quite high, especially when you get in that range from uh, um, 75 to 85 years of age. The risk increases quite a lot. But most people do not develop dementia. So when we consider normal aging and the kinds of uh, changes that take place in many different biological systems with aging, the primary goal there is the prevention of the development of mild cognitive impairment. The uh, primary tools for doing that at this point generally come under what's been called the Brain Health Initiative, or BHI, and there are programs such as the Maintain the Brain program that can be seen on the Alzheimer's Association website, www.alz.org. You can look at the Brain Health program there. But the first phase is normal aging. The second phase that gets attention then is mild cognitive impairment. And obviously, the primary treatment goal there is to prevent the progression to dementia. I had mentioned serifolin and axona a little bit ago. And I would also uh, bring up the Brain Health Initiative in this area to do what can be done through medications, through lifestyle changes, and uh, things like that to um, keep a person who has mild cognitive impairment functioning independently and functioning very well in a rewarding lifestyle for a long time. The next category is mild dementia. You know, when we use the term dementia, uh, and we've discussed previously on this show, we have a tendency to picture someone who is very old, very uh, incapable, very disabled, perhaps not even able to communicate meaningfully. But, you know, I have had a number of patients, and a lot of other practitioners around the country have had patients who have a diagnosis of mild dementia, possibly very early Alzheimer's disease or some other condition that continue to work in very responsible positions and continue to fill those uh, professional roles very adequately. So mild dementia, the primary treatment goal there is to slow the rate of progression and hopefully um, eventually arrest the disease state, in other words, stop the progression totally and restore lost stability. So if a person has had uh, three years of um, mild impairment that's reflective of mild depression and that disease process is arrested or is stopped, there are uh, some needs for rehabilitation of lost abilities, and those would have to come about. We've seen that type of process with different uh, other neurological disorders as well. The fourth group in this overall scheme is moderate dementia. Now, when we talk about moderate dementia, what we're talking about here is somebody who has significant memory problems and who probably is demonstrating difficulties with word finding, difficulties with expressing themselves, uh, staying on focus, staying on topic, and um, uh, the primary treatment goals there are to continue to work with medications like Namenda, for example, to slow the rate of progression and continue to do the lifestyle changes as well, including maintaining socialization even when socialization becomes more difficult because that does help slow the progression. Then, of course, we have severe dementia and uh, that's a, a, a very difficult condition to treat, uh, but the goal there is to maintain as much quality and dignity as possible. 
Now, how does this apply to you? Well, obviously, it's clear that the measurement of memory and other cognitive abilities needs to start being done on a regular basis as a person comes into the age of increased risk for Alzheimer's disease or other dementias. And so, um, in fact, the gray matter system that you heard talked about during the commercial was developed specifically for that purpose as a tool that a physician can use in the annual wellness evaluation or that can be used in lots of other settings that will allow systematic, objective, and sensitive monitoring of memory and other cognitive skills. Well, we are about out of time here. Again, I'm so grateful to you for listening, for tuning us in this evening, and uh, request that you let other people know about the program and the availability through archives and podcasts. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Neuro Matters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week. We'll be right back.